As mentioned already this evening, what a tremendous privilege, a great blessing is ours to be able to assemble and to gather even as we are. The songs that we've just together sung have truly been beautiful, the message very stirring and compelling. And in addition, the prayer that we shared a moment ago also is very touching in so many ways, reminding us of so often those most great and eternal truths that should occupy the thoughts of our heart and life. As Lester mentioned also a moment ago, we're certainly thankful for the presence of each and every one. Not only our membership, but their visitors have come our way tonight. We trust that the opportunity to come together will be met with a great benefit to each of us as the time of the service has come to a close, that we can truly say it has been good and well for us to have been here. As you perhaps know, for those that are, have been here on the Sunday nights over the last several weeks, really since the 1st of June, we have been involved in a series of studies dealing with the books of 1 Corinthians and Galatians, prompted really by the fact that's the books the Bible bowlers are studying this year. As we've noted throughout that series of studies, we have been really coming face to face with a whole host of matters, not the least of which are these. We completed that 1 Corinthians letter, all 16 chapters of it, looking somewhat briefly at the contents of that book. And then we began last Sunday evening the book of Galatians. It is to that book I'll invite you to turn with me again. We used that opening lesson last Sunday to consider both an introduction as well as some major thoughts of chapter 1. Tonight, chapters 2 and 3 will come before us. It will be quite fair to note that we'll be able to at least recollect some of what we saw then because it really forms the foundation for the thoughts that Paul presents to that Galatian series of individuals this very night. Those studies prompted us to give thought to this. We noticed in chapter 1 issues surrounding the fact that Paul was astonished at something. He marveled in verse number 6 that they had so soon removed from the gospel unto another gospel which Paul quickly clarified by saying, it is not another. There is but one gospel of Jesus Christ. That points us directly to Ephesians 4, beginning in verse number 4, in which that oneness is highlighted in language, lifted to the plateau and crescendo of this. There is one body, and one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And that oneness, Paul quickly made use of as he amplified it to these Galatians. There is not another gospel. As he finished that thought in verses 8 and 9, wasn't it stated like this? Though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That really is the opening saga then for chapter number 2, which we undertake this evening. In that chapter, we quickly appreciate the following. Under a section that I've entitled simply by the word justification... We observe the following. Chapter number 2 has as its opening thought some of these ideas. There were some false teachers, believe it or not, that had come into the Galatian area. After Paul had left to work elsewhere, as they had come, their major thought, their major piece of doctrine was this, that in order to, in fact, be a Christian, in order to be satisfied and content as a member of the body of Christ, one also had to maintain allegiance to one or more aspects of the law of Moses. In other words, you had to pass through the channel of the law of Moses in order to be a Christian. 
Thus, they perhaps taught very well matters that you and I would be well familiar with, like faith and belief, baptism even. But they also had as a part of it, you also have to be circumcised. You also have to keep various and sundry other obligations underneath the law of Moses. It was in that regard that they merely combined the simplicity of the gospel with something else. And that led Paul to make some comments like these. In verse number 4 of Galatians chapter 2, please listen to the sternness and the simplicity with which Paul makes this description. And that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Paul made reference, didn't he, to false brethren. Individuals who, of course, he called them brethren, they had the operation, they had the impression of being recognized as brethren. But that adjective is so very strong, isn't it? They were false brethren. You'll notice that they came in privately. One of the translations, in fact, uses the word stealthily. That is to say, they sneaked in, they slipped in, they didn't come in announcing what they were teaching, they didn't come in making a public spectacle of that which they proclaimed, they slipped in, perhaps under hiding, perhaps with other impressions. But upon slipping in, notice he says, they came in to spy out something. With full telescopic vision, they came in to spy out our liberty in Christ Jesus. Isn't it grand to give thought to the fact that in Jesus, you and I do enjoy tremendous freedom, remarkable liberty. Yesterday, there was one juncture of the matters in Perfisboro in which Tom Holland, didn't he, gentlemen, spoke about the liberty, the freedom that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. And as Tom is so eloquently able to do, he spoke of it with such passion. He spoke of it with such overwhelming, compelling character. Of course, the Apostle Paul did so centuries ago as he called the Galatians to recognize the fact that these false brethren are in fact not increasing your liberty. They're coming to spy it out, appreciating what's available in it because they are wishing to take you again into bondage. Oh, the tragedy of these false brethren trying to encapsulate the beginning to bondage. You'll notice in the next verse, very sternly, Paul said, To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. The gospel cannot be compromised. It must not be compromised. And you and I appreciate, Paul said, we did not give credence to this falsehood. We did not support it, encourage it, or in any way give thought that it might in fact be correct for even the slightest moment, not even for an hour. As you recognize the final statement of that same verse, there's one other thought that Paul quickly mentioned in contrast to these false brethren. He said that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. There is a marvelous, sweet, and beautiful truth, of course, in the gospel. It is that truth that you and I recognize centered around the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and the precious gospel based upon those facts. And here he says, these who are trying to bind again mosaic institutions, mosaic illustrations, they are in fact compromising that freedom, taking you again into bondage, and it's not the truth. 
we still live in the midst of a world that tries so often to amalgamate the gospel of Jesus Christ with various and sundry other human speculations and ideas. And in so doing, isn't it parallel to what these were doing then? You and I might recollect in 2 Peter 2.1, the inspired apostle Peter joining in this chorus, if you please, said, But there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall also be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. You'll notice that in 1 John 4, 1, John, joining in this discussion, says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. The truth of those statements has it assuaged in the slightest in these 20 centuries that have intervened. Might you and I notice then that Paul battled it, but did so with the truth of the gospel at his side. And thus, in the verses that follow, Paul directly asked the Galatians to appreciate the fact of his own apostleship. Paul didn't come into the Galatian area preaching a fly-by-night gospel. He didn't preach anything other than what by revelation he from the Lord Jesus Christ himself had received. Again, Galatians 1, verses 11 and following. But as we notice in verses 6 and following, there were those who seemed to be of reputation, those who seemed to be of great repute. Paul said, they added nothing to my gospel. They added nothing to the way in which I proclaimed and declared the truth. And in fact, even those in verse 9 who seemed to be pillars, Peter and John and James, they didn't add anything to my proclamations. Paul was an apostle on par with them. And these false teachers apparently were calling into question his apostleship and thus asserting, you can't trust what Paul has to say. So they said, Paul said not so. Not as if he was bragging or as if he was in a braggadocio fashion lifting himself higher than what the Lord Jesus Christ already had. But Paul confessed to them, I too were such that I didn't go and confer with Peter when I was baptized. I didn't go and confer with these others to find out means whereby I could preach. The Lord Jesus Christ had in fact selected and chosen me. And in that word we notice specifically verses 11 and following. Paul even quickly made reference, recollection if you please, to an occasion in which he rebuked Peter to his face because he was to be blamed. Here was an apostle of the Lord, the one who in fact had been given the keys to the kingdom. Acts chapter 2 on which he had used them, promised the gift of them in Matthew chapter 16. And we notice even he, even he had been led astray by this distinction between the Jew and the Gentile as so many had at least taught it. In these verses, Paul quickly identifies that even he needed correction, namely Peter. Can you and I not see the great need for all of us to ever come to grips with the truth found in the Word of God and to not allow the claims of men to lead us astray into what in fact is not gospel truth? Would it not be tragic beyond description to arrive at the day of judgment and say, but Lord, I thought that isn't enough, is it? In Matthew 7, verses 21, 22, and 23, the Lord Himself said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, 
But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I say unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The Lord there made observation that some on that day will be perhaps confused. They will think that all is well. They will be under the impression that all has been provided capably. But then he'll say, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Although they mouthed his name, although they give thought to works in the name of Christ, they had no relationship with him. How sad, how tragic. Paul was, of course, hopeful the Galatians would come to their senses. As you and I proceed in chapter number 2, verses 15 to the end of that chapter, then begins his grand discussion of this matter of justification. As you can see on that slide, it brings us to appreciate there near its bottom that the characteristic of the truth housed in this gospel is truly beyond the bounds of human ingenuity, human creativity. No human would have come up with it. No human would have written it even if he could. For it highlights the fact of our own weakness, our own sin, and brings into play the reality of one who died on the cross for us. Isn't it great then to hear Paul use words like these? Verse number 16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ." Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Mention is made so quickly in verse 16. No flesh shall be justified by the law. This law of Moses that these false teachers were so strongly teaching, so strongly demanding, Paul said, you must appreciate the fact no flesh can be justified by that law. Isn't it true the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin? Hebrews 10, 4. Isn't it true, Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, that you could never be justified by that law, Paul taught. You and I have come face to face with Paul reiterating that truth in language like this. Not justified by that law of Moses. For a thousand five hundred years approximately, that law reigned supreme for the children of Abraham through Jacob. It was the law to which God expected them to give credence. It was the law to which God expected them to give obedience. It was the law that highlighted so many powerful realities not the least of which was the fact that one needs to have relationship with God, but there must be a better system than that. Although it made reference to blood, it wasn't perfect, sinless, guileless blood. Although it made reference to a priesthood, it wasn't a perfect priesthood. And although it made reference to a covenant, it wasn't a perfect one. All of those looked forward to a better matter in every regard, didn't they? 
It is for that reason we notice again here in verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. These Judaizing teachers that were so prevalent and rampant in that day were teachers that couldn't give hold, couldn't give up their hold on that law of Moses. They had too much consideration for the fact they thought it was still in place. As you can see on that slide with me, though that wasn't true. To the Colossians, Paul would say in Colossians 2.14, it had been nailed to the cross. Jesus had said it like this in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. And then he went on to amplify it like this. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That law had run its course. It's not that it was thrown into the trash. It is that fact it had been completed. Closed, the book had been shut, placed on the shelf, and a new book had been opened. That new book was the gospel preached so powerfully by the Apostle Paul. That gospel that had been set forth in the character of this Galatian letter, helping them to see the truth of the gospel. No wonder as we give thought to justification by faith, as you can see at the bottom of that slide, it does take us to Galatians 3.11. Where there it says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. That word evident means a certainty. It is sure. It is clear by absolute observation. You and I must wonder, then what is it that has been so clearly observed that then brings us to see this justification by faith? You've already noticed it was mentioned in verse 16 of chapter 2, but let's turn the attention more thoroughly, if we might, to discuss it as follows. Justification by the faith of Christ. There was a gentleman. He was God in the flesh. He came from the portals of heaven to live amongst mortal sinful man. He did so as God in the flesh, and in so doing, He fulfilled in completeness and absolute perfectness the obedience to that law beneath which He lived. This one, of course, was the Son of God as he matriculated through life. Never once did he sin in any way. Thus his blood was untainted with the contamination of sin. His life untouched by sin in all of the awfulness with which it brings. He could be a sacrifice for you and me. And he went to a cross voluntarily to execute a plan of salvation whereby you and I could be saved from the terribleness of sin. As he executed that plan, it was he who in John 19 verse 30, the closing statement that he made on the cross, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. It is finished echoes in your mind and mine, not just the fact that his death was finished, we know that, but the very thing for which he came, the very purpose for which he was born, the very purpose for which he died, it all had been brought to fruition. For you see, he came. And Paul here stated in verse number 16, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. The faith exemplified in the life that he lived. The faith shown by the absolute obedience that was illustrated and exhibited in his life. The absoluteness with which he walked sinlessly before God. If you and I by some means can attach to the faith he showed, the life that he lived, then you and I too can have that same hope of salvation. 
By what means is that attachment accomplished? By what means is the reality of that made complete? You and I realize that the life and death of Christ is a historical fact. Although there are those who still have the nerve to call it into question, to claim that there was never a real man named Jesus that lived. Can you imagine what it would be like to stand before Him someday and try to claim that? He did live and He did die. He was buried and He was resurrected. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4, the thoughts of that resurrection are set before us and that is the bedrock that gives you and I the hope that you and I too one day shall be resurrected and raised. No wonder Jesus said in John 5 verses 28 and 29, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grace shall hear His voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. All of that sits as a background and backdrop to the very thoughts in Galatians 2 and 3. This one who died for us. What about justification through Him? You'll notice that man's submission is involved. And that submission so powerfully helps us see language that I've tried to highlight on that slide. I made reference with you to Romans 1 verse 17. In that famous passage, Paul had begun it one verse previous by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul made reference, didn't he, on that occasion to a different congregation, that one in Rome. The gospel of Christ is his power to save. And furthermore, he said, therein, in that gospel, is God's righteousness revealed. Man's righteousness doesn't come by what he thinks. It doesn't come by what he feels. It doesn't come by an emotion, a sense of characteristic there might be in one's own belief system. Justification comes as you and I find that salvation reiterated and taught so plainly in the gospel. This book is that precious, how sweet indeed that it is. Another passage we find also listed in Romans 3 verses 20 through 24. When to that same congregation, Paul made note of that justification by faith. But historically, that has been a stumbling block, hasn't it? Countless individuals like to insert the word only or the word alone. Justification by faith by itself. Wherein they fail to appreciate not only that text, but the implications of this Galatian letter. As we'll try to unfold in just a few moments. Perhaps one final passage is that one in Hebrews 7:18, where there wasn't it true the Hebrew writer, be it Paul or someone else, was able by inspiration to say that it is not in the law that we find that which makes us complete. If it's not in the law of Moses, where then is it found? Is it not in that which emanates from Jesus, the faith of Christ? As you'll see next on that slide, it's now time to introduce Abraham, and Paul does so so swiftly. Justified as those recipients of the promise made to Abraham. Paul was a master of Old Testament history, wasn't he? He was one who on a spur of the moment's notice could take an individual and lead him or her through a fantastic journey of the Old Testament and bring them to a conclusion that's inescapable. 
a conclusion that inevitably follows from what the Old Testament taught. And he was able to do so again here. As you and I consider that same journey over the next moment, we will not be nearly as complete as Paul might have been, but we nonetheless can so easily observe this. The old law, that law of Moses, that these individuals, false teachers were teaching, it pronounced a curse. Notice Galatians 3.13, the curse of the law to all who did not keep it. And yet we know that those individuals who lived beneath it, they didn't keep it as they disobeyed it. The very curse of that same law doomed them in the very way that they tried to manifest it to others. What a terrible system in many ways. The same law that they couldn't keep doomed them forever. But yet, within the heart of that very law was the message of one that was to come who would rise above it. The very Messiah, the anointed one of God would arrive and in His life, they could finally find the grand fulfillment they had so long desired. Let's then revisit Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, didn't He? In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, Genesis twenty-two eighteen. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, to that same gentleman God had utterly said in such power that all families will be blessed through you, your name will be great, and so too will all who attach through you. At this point, thus it behooves us to ask, then by what means... Is one able to join the family of Abraham? By what means is one able to be a member of the nation to which God referred in that verse? In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Clearly the first three words of the verse are key. In thy seed. So who is the seed of Abraham? By what means can one be reckoned as a seed of Abraham? And it is therein where Paul gave a dissertation to the Galatian individuals. A seed of Abraham. You'll notice specifically as you arrive at verses 16 and following of Galatians chapter 3, we too are prepared for the same. That discussion leads us to appreciate the following. The Hebrews, the Jews if you please, of the first century era, felt as if they, by the fact that they were the literal physical descendants of Abraham, that they were the ones to whom God referred in that passage in Genesis. Since we are descended literally from Abraham, we can trace our genealogy back to him, then we're the ones apparently to whom God referred, and so we're happy to receive all the promises that God has thus made. But there was one feature they overlooked they had completely missed the point of the passage and in part the grammar is what they failed to understand. God did not say, and to seeds as of many. Notice verse 16 of Galatians 3, He said, and to seed as of singular. Well, there was then one individual of whom God had desire and there was one individual in the purview of that and it wasn't the ones who they thought it was. In fact, verse number 16 again says, Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed. And the last three verses identify which is Christ. The one that was to come from the day of Abraham at least, the one that was to be its fulfillment, who was to put in place this superior law, the one that was to be the seed through whom all the nations could be blessed was Jesus the Christ. 
It wasn't these Pharisees, as they thought, or even the Sadducees, or even the others of that first century era that were Judaistic in their thoughts. Oh, what it then begs of us to ask. So how do you and I attach to the seed of Abraham, which is Christ? By what way is that connection made? Thankfully, we aren't left to wonder because Paul, again, by inspiration, states it, doesn't he? As you and I look for the latter parts of chapter number 3, I'd invite you to read again. Brother Greg read in our hearing earlier the following, but let's back up a few verses and begin even previous to that. In verse number 19, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Isn't it true that if righteousness could have come by that law or any other, then that law would have been what would have been demanded. It would have been what God would have given and it would have been the means by which one could have been an individual obtaining righteousness. But as Paul had already stated in Galatians 2.21, if righteousness come by the law, Christ died in vain. On to verse number 21. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise of faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed." and heirs according to the promise. That law, why then did God give it? If its imperfections were clear, if its failures were obvious, God gave it, Paul said, for the following reason. It was given to explain or at least to check sin until the seed should come. God didn't give that law to be permanent. He never intended it to be so. He gave it until the one would come to whom it pointed, the one that would be the amplifying matter of faith. You'll notice the title of our lesson again was Justification by Faith. And so far we have in fact encircled it almost completely. We've identified that law that pointed to faith and now Paul said it like this. But before faith came, verse 23... There was a time before this faith of which Paul spoke had come. You and I live in an age in which so many are under the impression that faith is something that one feels, some emotion, some kind of an observation that he or she thinks, he or she believes or knows. But the manner in which the inspired apostle used that term is far deeper and more profound than that, isn't it? Faith is something that came at a specific time and it had ramifications for all future generations until the end of time. In fact, it even has consequences so deeply profound they impact all of eternity squarely and clearly. 
before faith came, we were kept under the law. That law prevailed for a period of time, but then we noticed the faith came. That law was a schoolmaster. Some have likened it to a bus driver. It drove the individuals to a point of appreciation. There is a place where the professor is. There's a place where the teacher is. The bus driver brings us there. And we notice on this occasion, the law was that bus driver, schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Thankfully today, we have been brought there. In the Old Testament, Paul used correctly to lead him there at least after the road to Damascus incident. And now we appreciate verses 26 and 27. So this faith of which we've spoken, this faith that he has highlighted in language like we've noted so far, now asks us to appreciate this. Verse 22 had said, All are under sin. And in that sin we're shut up into bondage, but thankfully the faith has come. That faith highlighted in the character of Christ. And you'll notice here it's much more than just what one thinks. All throughout the Bible it is stated so clearly that way, isn't it? Those who think that this way today have missed the mark on that point. Faith is not just a mental ascent. It's not just a single idea, but rather it is a set of beliefs that then prompt one to conduct one's life in a specified way. The faith was once for all time delivered to the saints, Jude verse 3. And that faith leads us to see some ideas like this. It has as one basic consideration the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and it's essential, isn't it? to appreciate it housed in the language of Hebrews 11. Is it any wonder in light of all those things? You and I revisit verses 26 and 7. For a year all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So these in Galatia, these individuals who previously had appreciated the gospel, Paul said, you became children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That faith that Christ had that allowed Him to complete that plan of salvation, your attachment to Him is what allows your sins to be covered, is what allows you to be called a child of God. And the depth of that continues into the next verse. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ. So in what way was that connection completed? In what way was the finality of it made? It's when you were baptized into Christ, not before and not until. You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So individuals that fail to be baptized or refuse to do so, they are not in a position then to be called children of God. Their faith has not prompted them to complete in any way what would be a wholesome and noble fullness of New Testament faith. They've lacked on an essential element of making final connection to Christ. Isn't it tragic then to hear those who feel as if baptism is not important, that it is not essential, that it is not necessary. They think that there are other means that allow one to enjoy the faith of Christ when it's not so. You're all the children of God by faith. Well, what does faith do? Faith does what God commands and God commands baptism. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. Isn't it grand to hear Paul conclude the chapter when he then says, And if ye be Christ's, 
Then are you Abraham's seed. God made the promise to Abraham. That promise was, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now we learn that if we're Christ's, that is to say we've put on Christ, He is the singular one that's the responsible factor that relates to the fulfillment of that promise. And so if you are then in Christ, then we, of course, can be the beneficiaries of that promise. Are you in Christ tonight? If not, you haven't been justified by His faith or anyone else's. Because there is no justification with God outside of Christ. That doctrine of justification perhaps has many ideas that one can consider in it. It's been explained as it simply means, just as if I had not sinned. There's a lot of interesting thought in that, isn't there? To feel covered by the blood of Christ. It is indeed an overwhelming thought, isn't it? An individual who has just made the confession, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then that person allows him or herself to be immersed in water. It's not a complicated procedure or process, but what profound truth is in it. For in that process, the person is such that the old man, having now died, is buried. And in that burial process, a new life is formed, a new life spiritually is created. An individual is now a member of the body of Christ, and that one has had his or her sins washed away thoroughly, completely, and entirely. And God's memory is perfect, never to be remembered will they be. As that person has risen in that fashion, he or she has then been covered with the blood of Christ. May I say to you that any righteousness that you or I may have apart from that is completely filthy. It's like rags. But when we're covered with the blood of Christ, we are covered with perfectness and wholesomeness, the absolute nature of the perfection of His blood. As we close this lesson tonight, this doctrine of justification will have thoughts that will really emanate on into the next chapter as well. In chapters 4 and 5, we'll have to see some other implications of it, but might we at least close tonight like this. We have looked interestingly at, at the problem prompted by those false teachers and the fact that justification they taught came through keeping the works of that old law. Paul said, not so, Galatians 2.16 but rather only through Christ. That law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And now that faith has come, we aren't under the schoolmaster anymore. Tonight, are you then walking by faith, living in faith, founding your life on the faith of Christ? For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.11. This evening, as we each analyze ourselves, what about you and what about me? Are we walking by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7? Are we living a life prompted by it day by day in all the fullness that it demands? If so, may we continue, for we know that that faith is involved in justification, and it is in that way that we are Christ's indeed and heirs of, Abraham, of the promise given to Abraham. If tonight, though, all is not well with you, things are not well with your soul, things are clouded in sin, Maybe you've never initially come to the Master. You are still walking in the gross iniquity surrounding all that has beset you in life to this point. The plan of salvation demands that you exemplify that faith like this. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of sins. 
confess His name as the grand and precious Savior that He is and be baptized for the remission of those sins. At that point, with sins gone, you're clean, pure, washed in white, just like those in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. If we could assist you in that way tonight, don't delay. We aren't promised tomorrow. If you have become a member of the body of Christ and you knew what it was like to walk by faith, but those days are long distant memories. Things have changed. Developments in life have happened. You aren't close to the Lord anymore. In fact, in sin, you're far from Him. Don't remain in that condition. There's a host of individuals here that would shed tears of joy over praying with you tonight. And not only that, the angels in heaven would join in that thought as well. Luke 15, verses 1 and following. If tonight we could be of any help to you in a public way, please don't delay, but let us know the way we can and use justification by the faith of Christ as the prompting thought. If we can assist you, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.